Today is October 19, 2018. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S. Canadian border are the Blackfeet. North of the border is Siksika, Ganaya, and the Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are also now on Treaty 7, signed in 1877, with signatories that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, Wesley Chinique and Bearspaw Nations, the Sutina or Sarsi Nation. I also acknowledge all Indigenous that are First Nation, Métis, Inuit status or non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I can share what I think I know as I walk down my red road. My name is Michelle Robinson. I was born in Calgary as Michelle Elliott, another English name which has afforded me great privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene, or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellowknife's Dene. My father is so Canadian that I am the daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act imposed status card. I acknowledge my Dene lineage and that I was born in Calgary, but my family is not part of the Treaty 7 signatories. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people, in Treaty 11. I am a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to the area of Clincho Tine Indehe in Dene meaning Many Horse Town, named after the Calgary Stampede. My spirit name is Red Thunder Woman, given to me in ceremony, and you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge in support. I want to say thank you to Amanda, Amy, Ariel, Ashley, Beatrice, Charmaine, Diana, Dustin, Joni, Judy, Julie, Kenna, Matt, Nathan, Sharon, Tiffany, and Veronica. Thank you all for signing up. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. For those that cannot afford to uh, give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. Send in your comments or questions. We are also on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Nativecalgarian.com is also up. Violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to just speak freely, without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, but sure want to tell us theirs, and usually by people who know nothing about Indigenous, know nothing about colonialism, know nothing about the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights, uh, just typical microaggressions people that are always dealing with internalized racism. So in our world, a lot of people call that lateral violence. Um, people who become gatekeepers that survive off the status quo or people who are really still in their trauma and stop people from doing good work, depleting personal resources. Internal and external racism is just an everyday reality for Indigenous people. So I started this podcast as a hope that my family and my daughter will be proud in the future trying to discuss these present day issues in a way that they'll understand down the road. I want to also put into action cultural safety. You can create a safer space for Indigenous people uh, by simply having a meaningful land acknowledgement, by um, starting off on that way and that foot. The whole point of treaties was equality. And to this point we haven't had a lot of that so if you truly gear, care about indigenous inclusion please start all meetings and um, 
any events, gatherings with the land acknowledgement, um, have it on your websites, have it in your, in your notes, um, any handouts that you have, those types of things. Uh, we want to create safe, uh, culturally safe places for all people who are of color or LGBTQ2 plus or uh, people who may have a disability. So, you know, a lot of people will start by acknowledging their pronouns right away. So by saying, you know, I identify as she and her, that is a gateway to open up the floor to other people to know it is okay to identify as they and them or however they want to identify. Um, uh, also, a good point to do, and I do this in my book club, is to give space to those who are most marginalized. So, and, and coming up is uh, my book club that I'll talk a bit about, but in the meantime, there are some other things that you can do, and here's some uh, tips and tricks. So, do something. Having good intentions is not enough. Take actions and make change. You got to speak out against racism. Um, ask questions of those with more understanding. Find allies and create a support a support system for yourself so that you can advocate for culturally safe approaches. Um, you can take responsibility for your own learning. Read, reflect, and ask questions. Do not expect this learning to come from Indigenous people, people of color, LGBTQ2+, and other marginalized groups, especially if you have the privilege to do that work. Take time for self-reflection. Be aware of your own assumptions and biases. Um, question everything you've learned about Indigenous people and take steps to actively disrupt those stereotypes. Um, assumptions and biases... I've come across a lot of them recently and, you know, I really do wish people would really take more time for self-reflection with their assumptions about Indigenous people. Um, anyway, commit to lifelong learning. Be prepared to be uncomfortable. If you are comfortable learning about these things, you're not doing it right. Understand colonialism and the legacy of racism is an ongoing and difficult task. And you can always Google what is Indigenous cultural safety. And I want to say thank you to heretohelp.bc.ca for uh, those tips and tricks. Uh, internalized racism. There was a really great post uh, talking about how much internalized sexism that even women have and how much of that internalized patriarchy women have. Um, you know, I really encourage people to really question why it is that they want to put down somebody else before they do it. So internalized racism is a situation that occurs in a racist system where a racially oppressed group um, supports the supremacy and dominance of the dominant group, maintaining or participating in that set of attitudes, beliefs, social structures, ideologies, and undergrid the dominating group's power and privilege and limits the oppressed group's own advantages. Like systemic racism, it manifests in at least four dimensions of inner, interpersonal, institutional, and cultural. So those types of internalized racisms, I think you see on a regular basis. You just may not know about them. So if you'd like to find out more, look at uh, racialequitytools.org. Uh, look up what is internalized racism by Donna Bevins. Also, there's do's and don'ts for bystander intervention when you see um, any type of, I guess, oppressive interpersonal violence and harassment, whether it's towards um, Indigenous, whether it's anti-Black, anti-Muslim, anti-trans, or any other form um, of oppression, there are things that you can do. So, you know, make your presence known, make eye contact with the person being harassed, and ask them if you want support. 
Move yourself closer to the person being harassed. If it's safe to do so, film and record the incident. Create a barrier between the person being harassed and the attacker. Take cues from the person being harassed. You know, is that person engaging with the harasser or not? You can make suggestions like, do you want me to walk over here? Would you want to move to another train car? Do you want him to leave you alone and follow their lead? Notice if the person being harassed is resisting in their own way and honor that. Uh, Tone policing is something that I'd really like people to have a look at so that you don't do that when somebody is being harassed. Follow up with the individual being harassed after the incident is over and see if they need anything else. Do keep yourself safe. Assess your surroundings. Are there others nearby that you can pull in to support you? Uh, Working as a team is a good idea if possible. Can the person being harassed move to a safer, closer spot? Uh, Don't call the police. For many communities experiencing harassment right now, from Arab, Muslim, Indigenous, Black, queer, trans, and immigrant folk, the police can actually cause a greater danger for the person being harassed. Don't escalate the situation. The goal is to get the person being harassed to safety and to not incite further violence from the attacker. But don't do nothing. Silence is dangerous. It communicates approval. It leaves the victim high and dry. If you find yourself too nervous or afraid to speak out, move closer to the person being harassed to communicate your support with your body. And I'd like to uh, thank the American Friends Service Committee for that uh, resource of do's and don'ts for bystander intervention. And all of these things matter because ultimately every single day we have to deal with whether it's microaggressions or flat out racism. And thank God for the iPhones and everybody recording everything. Um, I want to thank my friend Corey from the university for having me over to talk to uh, some teachers. But what I really want to thank her even more for was a reminder about um, racial battle fatigue and challenging that. And there's a wonderful paper out there by Dr. William Smith, the professor of ethnic studies at Utah University. And uh, he co-authored a paper about racial battle fatigue. And that is that constant draining that uh, people feel when they're always dealing with racism, whether it's internalized, um, external or lateral violence. It's that regular um, constant white coating that has to be done in order to survive in this society. And of course, you have fatigue from that. And of course, you regularly um, get into situations that can quickly turn into very Uh, problematic spaces, whether it's just verbal or whether it becomes physical. So I want to say thank you to Dr. William Smith for just validating everyone. And, you know, if you feel really drained from uh, some of the work that you do, if it's uh, at all to do with racism or, you know, just living, (laughs) frankly, then uh, look up challenging racial battle fatigue because, you know, I always find it validating and I was really grateful that Corey brought that up again so that I could, you know, re-remember that. So I did mention that today is October 19th and today's actually been kind of a big day. Just seems like one thing after another is happening. Um, I did my last podcast on the Olympics and I talked pretty extensively about the calls to action that are uh, sports and reconciliation. And I mentioned the justice calls to action. And I really think that uh, people do not understand the gravity of how much, you know, call the action 57, 
the one about public uh, servants having Indigenous education, how important that is. And if we're coming up to an Olympic bid, how important it is for that to be implemented for the Olympic bid so that that way uh, Indigenous people are, are safe to be in these events and are treated with respect. And anti-racism training is something that's given you know, to all security and to all the volunteers and to all of the people that might be involved in these Olympics. Um, today, this afternoon, this evening, actually, Jordan Tutu announced, and I'll just read his tweet, after 220 regular season games with the Brandon Kings and 723 games in the NHL, I have decided to retire from the NHL to focus on giving back to the Indigenous community. And he tagged uh, some of his former... Um, Games or uh, teams that he he played on, so the Chicago Blackhawks, the the Predators, the Devils, the Detroit Red Wings, and the Brandon Wheat Kings. He tagged them all to say, "Hey, I'm retiring." So hats off to you, Jordan Tutu. Um, I was one of those people who read your book. We used it in our book club actually, and um, I'm really excited to see what the future holds. And I'm bringing it up right away because when I seen it, the first thing I thought was, "We need him." We need him as a champion to talk about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action. Um, so I'm actually hoping to connect with his people and hoping that his people, who already seem to be all about the Olympics, will be interested in understanding the gravity of the justice calls to action and understanding the sports calls to action so that we can, you know, have a safe Olympics for everybody and arguably when we host uh, people from different countries, especially ones who are racialized, that they feel safe and welcomed here as well. Uh, beyond just being um, an athlete, but knowing that, you know, they can come out to Forest Lawn and have, you know, wonder, wonderful Ethiopian food if that's what they want. Um, because we have so many different, we have the whole world really in East Calgary. So, you know, I'd love to see all the countries come out and feel safe and comfortable all across the city. Um, so with that, I wanted to bring up that I did try to go to one of the city's open houses and it was supposed to be at Bow Valley College, but I could not find it. And the security guards had no idea what I was talking about. So that was not looking very great on the city for having this outreach. Uh, regardless, my counselor, uh, Ray Jones, he actually did put together a night to have. He does regular uh, president's meetings. So that's when all the presidents of the different community associations come together and have a meeting with him and kind of talk a bit about what's going on. And, you know, it's it's kind of a closed uh, meeting so that that way it's just them talking about their issues. So he actually talked to the no side and the yes side of the Olympic bid. And they had all agreed to come do a small presentation each and then try to field some questions. And this was supposed to be a Northeast president's meeting, but they opened it up to the public. So, of course, I went. I was really excited to go. But unfortunately, at the last moment, um, the no side canceled. Apparently, they didn't like the format that it that there would be questions from the audience and they prefer... Uh, questions that they can at least vet so that they have, well, maybe not vet, but have in front of them beforehand so that they can at least answer them in their best ways. My husband, he was pretty sure he could just come up and, uh, 
you know, argue the no side all by himself because he's just pretty convinced he could do that. And um, I think anyone can say no, but I think it's really hard to say yes. So there was um, Stephen Carter. He was the fellow who came to present for the yes side. And it actually worked out to be really a wonderful evening anyway, because, you know, I think that the no side doesn't have anything to prove, but the yes side has everything to prove. So having Stephen Carter, now for those who may not know, he's a really big, you know, poli sci guy. Um, there's a podcast called The Strategist and just three poly nerds love politics, talking about politics. And, um, you know, I personally just didn't connect to it because I felt that it was very, um, a very small three guys talking about things and you know, I didn't relate to it as well. And that's part of the reason, of course, why I'm involved in politics, because, you know, Indigenous are excluded, women are excluded, and, uh, you know, families are are looked at in a different way from my perspective, as opposed to, you know, like these three gentlemen. So I finally got to meet Stephen. I've actually interacted a few times with him on Twitter, and uh, not all positive, frankly. And uh, he has me blocked on one of my accounts, <laughs> which I found to be hysterical. Anyway, um, he was way nicer in person to meet, frankly. Um, so if you're one of those people who have interacted with Stephen Carter only on Twitter, let me tell you, the guy in person is way better. Um He's, you know, first of all, he was really kind the moment I met him. He said to me, oh, Michelle Robinson. And uh, he, he knew of me right away, no question. So it was really nice to just meet him and see that he was a like a decent guy. But what really won me over was when he got on stage and he presented. He really great uh, strategy to start by, um, you know, having an emotional personal story. And that's what he did. He opened up with um, a bit about why he's passionate about Yes Olympics. And he told the story of his daughter, one of his daughters. He apparently has uh, more than one. Um, he, he said that she was a very shy person. And he said that both him and his wife seen the switch the moment she started getting into uh, skiing. And uh, this, as he said it, the world-class ski coach just like had her launch off into an airbag and from that moment on his daughter changed she she grew in confidence very strong person and and he said that was not something that me and my wife could do that was something a world-class coach taught her and apparently he said just to be very clear his daughter will never uh, be in the Olympics so that's not why he's a proponent of it it's more the you know, as a community person living in Calgary, the legacy of the 88 Olympics was his daughter got access to world-class coaching that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the 88 Olympics. So, which I thought, great strategy to open up with a really great emotional conversation. And, uh, you know, he, he definitely, as any parent would, you know, I, I have a daughter, he, he got choked up at a few times and I understand why, because we all want to see our children happy and confident and, and that moment that we can honestly say we've seen that switch in them. I mean, as one parent to another, obviously I understand that great strategy, Stephen Carter. So that's where he opens up is to talk about Yes Calgary. Now, you may not know this about him, but he worked with like Joe Clark and in the premier's office and, 
he has extensive experience in uh, politics. So this is a person who, um, you know, very clearly articulated. He's has, you know, budgets and he's worked with budgets and uh, talked a bit about the numbers. It was funny at one point in time, he said, you know, I'm not a math genius, but I have worked a budget. And then he kind of um, evolved more into uh, pieces of the Olympics that are on Twitter, in the news, and just tried to start kind of debunking some of the things that are out there. Um, it was interesting hearing him speak because there were things that came up during, you know, the Q&A from the audience that I was like, man, you know, you waited this long to tell us this. And it was one of the selling points, I thought, was the zero waste games and having a sustainable games. So in other words, we wouldn't have a ridiculous amount of, um, you know, waste coming from that. So all of the garbage will be recycled or compostable, which is good. Um, he said that, uh, you know, reduce, reuse and refuse are a huge part of the branding of this Olympics because we already have so many um, existing uh, pieces of structure. It's just a matter of upgrading a few of them while then, of course, getting a, there's a field house that they that they really need for the figure skating and the speed skating but that it can easily be converted so that was kind of the one piece that we really need that we you know would put a little more into um there's a lot more accountability he said that in this one than any other one which was good there were a lot of other you know pieces that he talked about that i didn't realize when they first put up the cop uh freestyle ski jump they didn't realize that the Chinook winds were the way they were. So that piece is going to be completely irrelevant because since 88, the technology has improved. The jumps would be bigger. So they literally would be jumping on the Trans Canada instead of way back. And as well with the crosswind from the Chinooks, it's not necessarily the best ski jump anymore, just the way it was situated. If it would have been situated even 90 degrees, I, I wonder if we would have a very different conversation about this. But he said that the um, that whole COP, though, would be converted to the freestyle skiing. Um, oh, I think I said that wrong. So the ski jumps would be changing into we'd probably have to rip that down, but we would be able to then make um, more of the freestyle skiing slopes that they need in order to have this Olympics. But his big win that I think a lot of people are completely unaware of that he was really big on promoting because his daughter is in skiing, he volunteers a lot. And what he told us was that, did you know that Calgary hosts 15 World Cups every single year? And most people don't know that. So we know now we already have the capacity for all the volunteers that we will need. They did one outreach and it was so many, it was so popular. They're not worried about having enough volunteers for this. Um, one of the other selling features that he said to me, so, you know, for transparency purposes, I'm a liberal, I'm part of the national executive with the indigenous people's commission. So, you know, this is something that is, relevant for this conversation because and uh you know Kent Hare he's the Calgary Center MP who happens to be a liberal he and many of the people that are in that area are the ones really championing this idea that we can host the Olympics and as it turns out polling for the Olympics even if it's in Calgary does really well in both Ontario and Quebec so 
we aren't going to be breaking up the country by any stretch by doing by by getting monies from the federal government and the thing that really i think changed the way i looked at what he had to say too was that when the transfer payments that come from alberta for every dollar we send we get 8 pennies back so if we get some money from the federal government it'll be like we get you know a dime back instead for every dollar so we'll actually get a little more investment that will really be critical for these games and in the bigger picture of the country it'll of course put a shine onto calgary but also canada for those who do not know calgary is like the economic engine of canada because all of the head offices for the energy companies are in calgary and they own and operate a lot of the um you know oil sands that are up in the uh, north part of of uh, the province and such they are the ones who really fuel the economy of the of the whole country so for us to have um, a spotlight on us we'll be talking about diversification by that time in 2026 and that will matter a lot when we're trying to do that diversification and we need to be making phone calls globally and having that spotlight on Calgary. So there was a lot of uh, things that were said that I thought, you know, these are really positive things to showcase. And I was really glad that he was given a good opportunity to speak. Um, now, if you have questions, comments about any of that, first of all, any mistakes will be on me. Um, Stephen Carter is a fabulous speaker, so I strongly recommend that you go to any of the Yes Calgary events to hear his perspective. Um, obviously very confident on the numbers as well and very confident that as of next week when we find out from the federal government what they're going to be um, giving us for this, we'll really know yes or no whether this is going to happen. And it'll be probably more than $1.4 billion. And again, that's that um, $0.08 cents to $0.10 cents per dollar that we give to the rest of the country. So and I know that's a lot of money, but, you know, that's really just we, us getting back two pennies um, from what we always give. So uh, back to my point, my point about reconciliation and the, and the sports. So my last episode, I went over the uh, sports calls to action pretty extensively, but I didn't go over the justice uh, calls to action. And I don't plan to today, but maybe I will in the next one to really emphasize and start breaking down, you know, what we can do as a municipality in regards to the justice calls to action in order to have an international, well, a global um, sporting event here again and be thinking a little more clearly about how to treat Indigenous people in that bigger picture. Uh, so there were questions from the audience. I had put in my question and it was my turn. Started off by doing a land acknowledgement and you know I was in a room full of a lot of older people who were not native I was the only native person in the in the in the place and you could tell the tone immediately shifted immediately shifted and I talked about our Indian residential school survivors being our homeless people and wanting to know more about the framework, about the housing that they were talking about, we would benefit from uh, come having, you know, an Olympic village that has all of the Olympians in it. And then once they leave, transitioning that into affordable housing and um, homes for homeless people. 
So I asked about that. And at the time, there wasn't much uh, to be able to tell us. I think um, to no fault of, you know, the yes side or Stephen Carter, it's just that those frameworks aren't really being made. And I just want to really emphasize that they need to be made. And um, I talked about how, you know, our smudge, our drums, our regalia, those are the things I want uh, international people to see when they first land in Calgary's international airport, not just the white hats. And uh, I don't even know if we can smudge <laughs> the uh, airport, but it sure would be great if we could. Um, so, you know, these were things that really mattered to me. Of course, the sports calls to action and understanding that anti-racism training is a part of that nowhere have I seen any of that in fact I went on to um, a website today no land acknowledgement no indigenous pictures inclusion nothing so you know it's right now we're in the initiative like in the initial stages but um, inclusion from the beginning as I pointed out in my last podcast while there was the commissioner and lawyer Wilton Littlechild as a part of the uh, exploration committee and there was a Métis lawyer that was a part of that as well um, it's still not really you know prevalent in a lot of the information that's available and that very much concerns me because if we're not talking about um they're very quick to say the winter and Paralympic games, which is, which is great. I'm super happy to hear that, but you know, we're, I want to hear more specifically that they're very interested in hosting indigenous, um, world games as well, because if it's not anywhere in their information, then I'm kind of led to believe that there's no intention of having the North American Indigenous Games or anything else that is very clearly in the calls to action for sports. So, um, you know, I know a lot of people talk about, you know what, why are you talking about this? Because, you know, there's clean drinking water issues and all sorts of things. And at the end of the day, we need to remember the way the Reconciliation Commission put this out, very clearly, they want to have ongoing um, access to games and sports for Indigenous kids. Whether we're talking at the urban level or whether we're talking on the reservations that surround Calgary, you know, this area really should be promoting that. And this really should be beyond just the Olympics. This should be something the Calgary Flames should be a part of and the Edmonton Eskimos and the Edmonton Oilers and, you know, sports all across the country should be looking at the TRC calls to action and wondering, you know, how it is that they can implement that better. And right now, I'm not seeing that across the nation at all. And these are ones that are, you know, easy to put together, yet I'm seeing absolutely no initiative from a lot of people on. And I say this all the time. I want to be wrong. I want to be proven wrong. I'd love to be proven wrong. I kind of throw it out there in the hopes people will prove me wrong. And I can't wait to come on here in the next episode or two and say, guess what I was proven wrong? Look out in Winnipeg what they're doing for reconciliation in sports. Love that. Love to be proven wrong. So please, go out of your way to prove me wrong, because I'd love that. So I think I'm going to kind of wrap up talking about the, um, 
the sports and that for now so that if you are only listening for Olympics and sports news, you can probably, you know, you're done for the day. That's great. Thanks for listening. I'm going to move on to some other things that happened since my last podcast. And uh, I wanted to bring up because I know, you know, I talk about violence against Indigenous women all the time. And um, I'm sure that has attracted a few of my listeners to talk about that issue. And about uh, four hours ago, Angela Sherritt, who is, you know, one of the leading Indigenous journalists here in Canada, she tweeted out that uh, I knew once I began covering Indigenous Me Too, it would be a big task, but I had no idea of how big the floodgates have opened. I know I get three to five calls a day of stories. They're all horrific accounts. So necessary to hear and to break the silence, but my God, is this intense. So first, you know, obviously racial battle fatigue. My heart goes out to Angela Sherritt for doing this amazing work that she's doing. If you're listening to me, I ask if you could please keep her in her in your prayers, but also all of the people that are are being courageous enough to contact her. Um, we all know when we're talking about intergenerational trauma, a lot of people put that in a small box. And to open up that lid is incredibly courageous. And sometimes closing that lid's not so easy. So if you can give prayers to all of these people, three to five calls a day that are going out to um, Angela Sherritt from these from these anonymous women for now, um, you know, just send your prayers out to that because these are hard times for people to be honest. And I think that when we start hearing these stories, you know, you'll see why we needed to have these prayers and send our ancestors over to their ancestors and give them that extra love and, and support. So, and and I'm telling you this as well, because if you are feeling silenced and you're you're ready to talk about it, you know, we're trying to create that safer environment now to make make these these um, statements. And I know a lot of non-Indigenous don't understand trauma-informed practices, but we're getting there and we're we're working on it. And hopefully we can support you through the Indigenous community. You know, we have uh, Awatan Healing Lodge has a 24-hour um, phone number here in Calgary. But if you're outside of Calgary, you know, even the distress centers and such, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, know that we're thinking of you and that we care about you, Angela. We're thinking about you as you do this hard, incredible work. So thank you. Um, I'm going to move on to Johnny Appleseed by Joshua Whitehead. So if you are in my real life world, you know that 12 CSI is where I work and that I go and do a book club once a month. Well, we've had numerous requests for Johnny Appleseed by Joshua Whitehead, and yet one of the lowest amount of people came to this one. So that was shockingly hysterical to me because anybody who's read Joshua's book, it's pretty hardcore porn, you know, for an old conservative boot like me. It's pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty hardcore porn for me. So you know, I uh, tried to, you know, get through that the best I could. I was so grateful that uh, uh, Possibilities Calgary gave me all that literature for me to give to people as resources and to promote uh, Possibilities Calgary as a resource for people who are questioning, um, looking for community that is queer so that 
people don't feel alone, it's really incredibly important that nobody feel alone while exploring their sexuality. There's no hard answers to a lot of these as well. Um, just know that you're in a safe space in at Possibilities Calgary. And um, the lead, she unfortunately had this, or they, sorry, they had this awful um, medical emergency, so couldn't be there. But I had intention of giving space to um in in our circle it's always indigenous get space and then because of the topic of johnny appleseed lgbtq2 plus we're going to have space over heterosexual so it ended up very being a very small group of us but it was a very intimate <laughs> uh, conversation and um but it, it was really a wonderful conversation and i i tell you i i'm so inspired by joshua whitehead he just where when I think I am being, you know, unapologetically Indigenous, he just pfft, breaks that barrier beyond what I could possibly imagine. And I'm so grateful for for him, but also, you know, our, our youth. They are so unapologetically Indigenous. And you just, I hope all of you know how much you inspire me every single day. And this literature work is just a great example of it. Obviously worthy of all of the um, nominations and awards that are being won. So hats off to you, Joshua. I'm so honored and proud to to know you. And I, I hope that, uh, yeah, we can just watch you become a god within the can-lit world and hopefully decolonize it immensely because, um, yes, as I am talking about that, there are incredible things happening in the can-lit world. Um, we just had right, what, blah, 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 World WordFest uh, celebrities coming here and continuing to come here, but I just wanted to um, talk a little bit about what was published a few hours ago, the Writer Union Investigating Incident at Vancouver Writers Fest. So this is a super intense article that just came out and it was basically a well-respected um, white guy standing up and interrupting an Indigenous woman about Indigenous issues. And it apparently was so awful that um, other people are in solidarity. Uh, so Eden Robinson, one of the um, leading Canlit authors that's Indigenous, she really spoke up on this as well. And um, she said she's going to take steps to remove her name and biography from the BC uh, book world because of what had happened. And I thought they ended the Globe and Mail article with a, a really great point. And it's that, you know, we have to make writers feel comfortable about going to these events, especially Indigenous writers, without fear they're going to be attacked. So I know it's annoying that every start of my events and my podcast, I talk about culturally safe spaces. But here's an example where if we would have had some culturally safe boundaries said prior to uh, her speaking that maybe people would not have felt confident enough to go attack her in the middle of her speech. So I'm hoping more will come out about this. 
And I'm hoping that people see how awful Indigenous women are treated in this country, even at the highest level, at the candlelit level. And I'm hoping that there will start to be some understanding of how quick people are to judge Indigenous women for saying what they have to say and never taking that time to really do that self-reflection that I speak about um, at the start of my cultural safety boundaries. So, you know, really think about um, why you may feel the need to be interrupting an Indigenous woman in the middle of a speech. And, you know, again, a really great resource, White Fragility. Um, I would like to see a similar book made called Colonial Fragility. The moment that uh, your colonial power is put into any sort of question, you interrupt an Indigenous woman, that's kind of your colonial privilege showing So it's time to really stop and do some self-reflection. If you're offended with the term white people, then you need to stop and do some self-reflection because again, we're, you know, under the Indian Act imposed um, system here. So we were labeled Indians. So if anybody's, you know, wondering about racial segregation, I mean, it's the start, it's the foundation of Canada. So... I wanted to bring up one of my favorite people in the whole wide world. Her name is Katie Lang. Um, She was the first person that I saw ever be, you know, really treated horribly by the, by the society. And because of that, I got to find out what a vegan was or a vegetarian. I didn't even know what a vegetarian was until all of Alberta was mad at her for being one. So, if there is somebody I can think of that's one of the most cr- courageous people that, um, you know, is a role model and unapologetically a lesbian, it is definitely Katie Lang. But her work, like her music is so good that even my redneck father, who's a Boilermaker, loves her music, always has, even her newer stuff. So I'm super proud to say that today uh, Katie Lang got the Order of Excellence from the government of Alberta. and. Um, you know, one of the people I always looked up to as a young Albertan girl, and I'm really, really honored to see this in my lifetime. I really would love to see somebody put out like a children's book because she's really worth that. I think all Canadian um, girls, lesbians <laughs> would look up to that. And I want my girl to uh, know the amazingness of Katie Lang to be just unapologetically Katie Lang in a time that wasn't really that accepting of you know, women coming out or, um, well, in Alberta being a vegetarian. So yeah, one of my heroes for sure. So congratulations, Katie, from me. I was super proud that you followed me on Twitter on my ward account. So, you know, I guess I have to run again because you did follow me. So not that you would ever listen, but if you ever did, I sure hope you know, I think you're a rock star. And I also want to acknowledge that, um, Canada every year talks about Persons Day and it's it's wonderful to acknowledge Persons Day because obviously you know for us to get our rights it takes time for us to get our rights but Calgary has a really special little place in time about when it comes to the Persons case. It's not just that Nellie McClung was here from Calgary and challenged the uh, British North American Act but there was a Métis woman named Lizzie Sear. And because she was a Métis sex worker, 
it was actually because of her that all of Canada and all of the women in Canada have been able to get the vote. It was actually really done at her expense. So I, I just wanted to acknowledge Lizzie Sear. I, if anybody out there is interested, just Google L-I-Z-Z-I-E-C-Y-R because you will read her incredible story that I think has been absolutely lost and I'm grateful I stumbled upon it and Naomi Sayers, she who was one of my guests previously, she actually wrote a deadly um, article about it so that that way more people would know because when I stumbled across this story, I was like, uh, I've never heard this part of the story before and now thankfully the YW put out an article and now um, others have been inspired to put out articles about Lizzie so that that way her contribution as uh, you know Calgary Métis woman isn't lost as a part of the bigger picture of how Canadian women got their rights because if it wasn't for her then who knows where we would be for uh, you know being considered persons so I think with that that's pretty uh, you know good place to say thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom, of what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be blunt and strong, my stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian heritage, and stepping up to be teaching me how to be a proud Calgarian. It's through you that I'm a proud second generation Calgarian. And I want to thank my husband for producing and editing the show on top of being my husband, my childhood friend, the father of our child, and my support uh, during the Red Road. He's literally witnessed decades of racism and sexism that I've had to experience. And to our child, we are blessed to learn from every single day. I'm so honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. Uh, my Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. I say again, thank you to my previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening and afford, can afford to give, thank you. For those who cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. Send in your comments, questions. We are now on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and nativecalgarian.com is up. And with that, thank you for listening to Native Calgarian. <laughs>